Let us pray as Jesus Christ taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Save us from the time of trial. Deliver us from evil. The kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen. Have a seat, everyone. Thank you all. Well, this uh, morning, I'm not quite sure what to call it. It's a, it's a teaching. It is a sermon, uh, but it has a little bit of a feel of a lecture to it, sort of like a seminary or a higher education uh, teaching. And so um, I don't know if that's an encouragement or, or a warning or a threat or what, but um, see if you can bear with me on it. And I'll try and do my best to get us through it uh, without a lot of head scratching. We go to the beginning of the uh, book of James, the letter by James in the New Testament in the Bible. And it begins this way. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. The dispersion means the Jews were scattered all over the Mediterranean in various towns. And churches were cropping up there because the first Christians were Jews. Greetings, James says. My brothers and sisters, this is right out of the gate. My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. I've been pondering lately this word complete right here out of this verse so that you may be mature complete lacking in nothing I keep wondering what he means by complete I think I always assumed that I knew what James means by complete I've seen this word complete in other passages I've looked it up in the dictionaries and it seems to say it's complete but does it mean satisfied is that what it means does it mean full does it mean wise and in the original Greek it says, it says it means exactly what you think it means. It means integrity. It means wholeness. It means undamaged or intact or blameless or undiminished. This idea of completeness is kind of what spurred me this fall for the last few weeks to keep talking about emotional health because you could talk to any therapist or psychologist or whatever and they'll tell you that wholeness is, is what we're after in therapy with people. We're after them becoming the whole person you know, or holistic or whatever you want to call it. They want to become complete, all put together just right. And so I believe if a person is emotionally healthy, that means they are this intact, complete, whole person, yeah? And, and I've become convinced, though, that many of us are not complete and that instead, unconsciously or subconsciously, we are driven by chaos and crisis, crisis, by anxiety. And when I say driven by it, I mean we actually unconsciously want it and produce it. 
We like crisis. I mean, we don't like it the way you like ice cream. We like it the way somehow it works for us. It's like, it's like we, 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 we strive off of it, we thrive off of this chaos, and it's like we're pulling the pin of a hand grenade and then we're dropping it at our feet and amongst everybody else, and we say, who did that? What's going on here? Where'd this come from? And we get stuck. We get stuck in this pattern of thinking that we're striving towards some sort of completeness or wholeness, but we keep self-destructing. We keep detonating it. And, and it looks like this. Some people overhelp, and then they wonder why nobody appreciates them, and they walk around angry, but they just keep on helping because they're stuck there. And some believe that they, they are making this awesome contribution to the family and to the organization and, and to everybody else, and, and then they just could not ever tolerate any criticism of their valuable contribution to everything. How dare you critique all my hard work that I'm doing? And, and some are so busy having fun that they can't even figure out the first step towards life's priorities or having any sort of focus in life. Life is all about entertainment. And I hear some amens out of those with high school students as your kids. And others are so full of fear that they can't stop searching for answers. They want to know the truth, and it's so elusive, it slips through their fingers all the time. And so they're on an all-out search for truth. And moreover, what happens is, is there's no God involved in that search for truth. They may claim to be Christian, they may read their Bible, but they're absolutely in control of their own destiny. And they're not even aware of it, that they've crowded out God. It all creates a crisis and a chaos. It creates a confusion and an anxiety. It creates a bitterness and this sort of scowl on the face. And so this morning, I want to pull back the curtain on our need for crisis and chaos. And, and I, I want to talk about us being stuck. And I want to get at this word completeness. Like, how do we arrive at this? Now, I understand, you know, we're not going to walk out of here in a few minutes and say, oh, thank you, we're all complete now. I got it. We're all good. And everything's fine. I understand that. But at least as far as the gospel goes and as far as, like, what we're after and trying to discern what James means here in the beginning of his letter, we're going to try and understand what this means. My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature, complete, and lacking in nothing. You see, there's sort of a sequence going on here, and we typically break this thing down. At first off, it starts off with a trial or a crisis or some sort of suffering, yes? And, and then you're supposed to have joy. And, and then, of course, you're supposed to endure the thing, and then somehow it has an effect of you being complete. It's kind of a four-step process, yeah? I think, everyone, that when we hear this passage of the Bible, like this one in James, we, and it's all about, you know, you're supposed to endure through suffering and trials, we hear the words, consider it all joy, and we think, well, we think one of two things. We think, well, I need to muster up some joy then. I'm supposed to consider it all joy when I, when I endure trials and suffering, so I'm just going to bootstrap religion it. I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps. I'm going to get myself some joy, and I'm going to get it tomorrow. And I'm going to work at joy. I'll get that done later. But I know I'm supposed to. I got that on the list. 
Joy. Or the other thing we do is we have this thing like, oh, man, there it goes again. That good old la-di-da religion that you're supposed to have a happy, shiny face in the midst of trial and suffering. Like, like, is that the biggest farce going on in the church or what? Praise the Lord, I have cancer. Oh, joy, my son's serving the military in Afghanistan. I'm just so happy about that. You know, because he's put his, his, his life in, in harm's way for the sake of all the rest of us. Either response doesn't sit well with me, either the get tough response or the fake it response. Both of those don't seem to understand completeness or get at what completeness means. I believe we don't know how to go through hard times and arrive at joy. I think the first step is broken for us because we have no idea where we're going because we don't really, first off, start trying to understand, well, what do you mean by complete? What do you mean by mature? What do you mean to be whole? How do we get to that? Tell me where I'm heading. Paint a picture for what the end goal is. Then maybe I'll figure out this endurance and then backing it up to joy and then backing it up to, oh, there's my suffering. So here's my picture of completeness. It isn't health. It isn't wealth. It's not even happiness or contentment. Here's what it looks like. And then God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. And so God created humankind in his image. And in the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them right out of Genesis chapter 1. See, the divine image is only complete when there's male and female. Completeness means not being alone. I'll say it again. Completeness means not being alone. Completeness means being in harmony with God and with the world around us. Adam and Eve had no fear. That's completeness. There was no fighting or selfishness or bickering with Adam and Eve. There's no misunderstandings. They got along. And I know at this point you're scratching your head like, wow, that sounds like a real fantasy here. They had no fear of the wild animals. Or, or, and Adam even called them by name. They had no fear of death. They had no fear of God, with whom they walked in the cool of the garden. They were in friendship with God. And they were naked and they were unashamed. There was no fear amongst Adam and Eve, between the two of them, in humanity. All of their drives and their passions were complete, were free, were whole, were intact. And in the Garden of Eden, they were complete. That's my picture of completeness. It's original idea of walking with God. And just to take it someplace where it may really leave you scratching your head, it's not that Adam, so bear with me here for a moment, Adam didn't think about God. Okay? The way you and I, like, I wonder what God's thinking right now about me and everything. Adam didn't have to have that thought, that split separation between him. He was infused with God. We're, we're going to really get desperate here for words. God is inside him. You're like, okay, he's not God. Adam is not God. That's not what I'm saying. But God is in, he's in the presence of God. They're in relationship. They, they are one. Can we say that? Not really. But yet they are in this deep abiding relationship. And at this point, if you understand what I'm trying to get at, then you've just become a mystic. <laughs> And you can turn to your neighbor and say, I'm a mystic. And your neighbor can say, like, well, good for you. 
What happens then in the garden? Well, Adam and Eve sin. Now, many well-intentioned Christians think Adam and Eve, this sin, this idea of sin is just simply a moral issue that they disobeyed. And I think we get this because we're in Sunday school and we teach our children, especially when our children disobey, and we say, you know, Adam and Eve sinned. And children, don't disobey because you don't want to disobey like Adam and Eve did because it went bad for them. Okay? But I think it's a really cheap way of understanding. It's a very narrow way of understanding what sin is. That just to narrow it down to disobedience. I mean, it's all true, of course, but, but this turns us into moralists. And moralism is the enemy of Christianity. And I, I'm very concerned. I'm very concerned about American Christianity in our generation being turned into moralism. Because moralism strips it out of a relationship and instead turns it into do's and don'ts. And because you don't need a relationship with Jesus to be a moralist. You can be a Pharisee all day long. And the Pharisees are the religious class of people that sweet Jesus held his most vociferous words for. His most flaming condemnations were for the moralist. He called them, you know, you brood of vipers, you whitewashed tombs full of dead bones, you blind guides, you sons of hell. There's your sweet Jesus for you. And so these days, I resist the simple notion that sin is defined just by this little, this little silly idea. I shouldn't say it's silly, but this simple idea that it's just sin is about missing the mark. And I don't like the idea of sin just missing the mark, although it's certainly true. I don't like it because it sets it up to sound like it's a competition. You, were you ever taught that sin means missing the mark? It sounds like you're in an arch, archery competition and that you didn't get first. And it turns into his black and white deal, which plays right into a cheap understanding of the moralist, of the Pharisees, that says, you missed, you're out. Of course, you know, Jesus and grace and all that comes in at that moment. Rather, I like this definition of sin. Sin is separation. Sin is separation. Adam and Eve sinned in such a way that they must hide from God. And the result of separation with anyone, whether it's your child who's done something wrong, like break the valuable vase, you know, in the kitchen or whatever, is that they run and hide. Humanity hides from God. We want to separate because we all know that distance is the cheapest form of therapy, which is what you do your first year of marriage when you move to the other side of the country to get away from them, the family. Sin is separation. The result of sin is separation. See, Adam and Eve, they were separated from one another, and that's why they felt naked. They weren't naked a moment ago, but now that they've sinned, they're separated from each other. There's something broken. And they were ashamed, and they were separated from the earth, which is now cursed, and they're separated from their original true self. And they feel this guilt and this fear and the shame and the anguish and the anxiety and the bitterness. And they begin to blame each other. And the chaos and the crisis ensues at this point. And they're separated from the garden, from the tree of life, because now there's a flaming sword that no matter where they move to try and get back, the sword stands in their way. And so they leave. And the separation's complete. It isn't just missing the mark. Sin splits. It splits the person. It splits the relationship between us, the world, God. Adam and Eve are in a crisis, yeah? They can't go home. 
They can't find God. So our first step in trying to understand this passage on our road to completeness, then, is to understand, then, what is, what is crisis That's our first step. Consider it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you encounter various crises, various trials, and hardships, and suffering, and pain. What's your crisis? You have crisis, right? The older you get, you might even have more than one. You know what it is. You could take that little golf pencil and hide it and write it down on the margin of your program and tear it off and roll it up and shove it in the dark corner of your pocket because you have a crisis, don't you? Something that's defined your life. Something that's separated you from others. Something that causes this low-grade, this low-grade anger. And it defines your life. And if in good Lakeland fashion, we all would simply come out of hiding, we could go around and say, like, I know what my crisis is, is that I was abandoned by my parents. Or my father beat me. Or my mom died. The older you get, the easier it is to name your crisis and to actually be able to come out of hiding and name them. You can have two kinds of crisis, you know. You have an external crisis and you can have an internal crisis, external and internal crises. In the <clears throat> external crisis, your, your stepfather abused you and, uh, or, or you got in with the wrong crowd and you got busted for something. You went to jail or whatever and, and you deal with the fact that you were gravitating towards the wrong crowd. Why was that? Or, or for some reason, you married somebody of equal trashy self-esteem and, and you fell in love or what you thought was love or at least neediness of some sort and you fell into the hurricane of marriage or relationship or whatever you call that now and it destroyed you. Those are the external crises and you're like, well, it sounds internal to me because there are internal crises, you know. They are the ones like you were abandoned or that you're an approval addict because you've been performing your whole life and, and your dad never thought you were pretty enough or fast enough or smart enough, or couldn't get their homework done. Or you have tons of suffocating noise in your head and you can't even actually tell a story straight. You're like, why can't I talk right? There's so much neural noise, as they call it, going on. Or you have some addiction, alcohol, food, drugs, sex, the usual suspects. Maybe, Maybe it's one of those kind, like I've mentioned, where you help so much, you help others, that you can't stop helping other people, and it's ruining you. It's eating you alive, but you can't stop it. You're addicted to helping and fixing and making everybody happy. And you wonder why they all can't stop worrying, why they won't stop worrying, so you can stop worrying. Enmeshment. Yeah, everybody uh, can name your crises in life, yes? Me? You want to know mine? Okay. 
I have more than one. They're both external and internal. External, crazy parents, bipolar, manic. Never knew what was going on in the home. Who's going to explode? What's going to detonate? Hand grenades, pins out, rolling everywhere all the time. And because of that, in childhood, I checked out. And through years of being with a counselor, I got my line down, what I told myself as a child. They're all crazy. I'm out of here. And in childhood, that worked as a perfect survival skill. You're all crazy. I'm out of here. And I'd get on my bike and I'd take off. In childhood, that was great. In adulthood, not so much. Intimacy, dysfunction, it's all broken. Don't trust anyone. Don't get close to anyone. Don't feel anything. Hide. Sulk away. If you don't believe me, you can ask my wife. She'll say, "Mm mm-hmm, that's true. See, we're all stuck in this crisis. Movement has to happen, and the, first, the, the next step then that we need in this thing is something that we like to say in the church, and it's called metanoia. Metawata? Metanoia. It is a Greek word. It's a fancy Greek word that nerds like me like to throw around, and a few other nerds in the church like to throw around, metanoia. And if you've been around the church for a while, you've, you've been a Christian for a while, then you know that metanoia means uh, some sort of repent. It, it, it means that you're <clears throat> supposed to uh, turn around and walk the other direction. But, but what it means literally, and if you're a Greek exegete here in the room this morning, a Greek scholar, then you're going to be saying, uh-huh, here, I'm watching, I'm watching you, so don't mess up, and I'm going to mess up. But it, it means move through thinking. Metanoia. Noia means think. Move through your thinking or what we would call have a change of heart. It really means change of head. But since we don't talk that way and we don't have that phrase in our vernacular, it means change of heart. It means wake up and smell the coffee or suddenly realize that everything that you thought was right is now wrong. It it is an aha moment in life. Or you say, I was convinced this was the way to do it. Now I realize it's absolutely wrong. This is exactly what happens to people when they awaken to Jesus Christ. And they say, I thought I had to be good enough for God. But now I realize it's, it's, it's a free gift. Jesus paid the price for me. And a grace explosion happens. And they cry because they've been released from this, this performance. When I was a young Christian, I, I was taught... That metanoia means to turn around and that we were told to repent and to turn from sin. And it's exactly what somebody who's a moralist would say. And my church was a moralist church. And so they would say, you need to turn from what? And you say, well, from sin. And that means all your lying and your cheating and disobeying, blah, 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 blah. Oh, okay, I got it. I know what repentance is. But moralism, again, is not a relationship. Moralism destroys Christianity. Moreover, it will keep you stuck in crisis because the metanoia becomes a blockade that drives you back and you won't consider it all joy when you're in your suffering. And there's nothing to endure and you won't move on to completeness. 
one of the largest benefits around Lakeland, part of our DNA around here, been going on for 18 years or whatever, maybe even more. Around Lakeland, we, we live out the prodigal son story. I mean, Garrett and Marta and I and other speakers and maybe some of you, we've all gotten up and we've told you the substitutionary atonement model. Jesus died for your sins on the cross. And everybody's like, that's good. That's great. I believe that. It's totally good. And then we say, but there was a father who had a son who took all his money and ran away. And everybody's like, yes. I'm listening. And this wayward son comes to his crisis, to his metanoia moment, to his aha moment, and he's slopping pigs in a foreign country. And you always get the part of Jesus' little story here because you have a Jewish boy slopping pigs, in other words, bacon, and it's not pretty. And while he's slopping those pigs, he says to himself, the hired hands at my father's farm have it better than I have it right now. I don't even want to be, I don't want to even belong anymore. I just want a meal and a bed. I'm just going to go home. Back to home. Back to the garden. Back to my father's house. Back to his presence. And I know I can't be a son anymore, but I can go home and just maybe I can just be close to it. And most of our spirituality in the church is us just trying to get close to God without actually being sons and daughters of God. Without us, without us actually having a relationship with Jesus because we've settled for some sort of moralism because we're, we, we don't know what our crisis is and we certainly have, really haven't figured out what it means, what it means to, to change our brain, to have a change of heart. We get stuck. We get stuck we get stuck. And most amazing is when he shows up, the father is not angry at him. He runs out to meet him and he grabs him. And, and we begin to scratch our head and say like, well, that's a fairy story. You know, it's just a fantasy because no father would ever do that because in my family, you know, my brother borrowed 2,000 bucks and he's not, that relationship is broke until he pays the money back. I'm telling you, man, you owe a pound of flesh when you screw up in my family. There's no forgiveness, no running out to hug somebody. Pay. Oh, yeah, they'll welcome you back. Oh, sure. But the whole time, like, well, you know, you never paid it back. You still owe me. <laughs> You'll see. Watch these conversations around Thanksgiving. Oh, really? You don't want to go over to their house for Thanksgiving. Why? Why? Because something is stuck. Stuck in your craw, stuck in your throat, stuck in your heart or your mind. The crisis. And we won't change. But the father doesn't even ask him to stop sinning. It's over. He becomes a son. The only way, everyone, to become a son or daughter, to become a child of God, is to go through the next step. Humiliation. The next step is humiliation. And you're like, uh, you mean like I'm a piece of dirt 
and I got to wallow around and then God's going to be happy with me? Like, that's not the kind of humiliation I'm talking about. I'm talking about the kind of humiliation that Jesus experiences when he's standing before Pilate and he says, don't you have anything to say in your defense? Nothing? Stone silence. That kind of humiliation. The kind of humiliation that causes one to lose face. And in the Hebrew mind, they had this idea of losing face. And we still even have it in China, that to lose face. We have a phrase for it in English, to lose face. It's an undignifying. It's when the king, the rabbi, Jesus, is struck and beaten with a crown of thorns put on his head and a mock purple robe put on him. It's a disgrace. Oh, you think you're something, but you're nothing. Oh, prodigal son, so you took the money and you ran, wavered son. You thought you were something. You thought you were big time running off with the wine, women, the song in the foreign country. Now look at you slopping pigs. And now look at you crawling back to your, to your dad. Now look at you having to become nothing. Now is that wallowing in the dirt? Well, for the prodigal son, it certainly was. Richard Rohr, Richard Rohr a Franciscan monk, says, Franciscan friar, actually, he says, Every one of us has to have a, a great humiliation every day. By that, he doesn't mean you need to feel bad about yourself. Having a humiliation every day says you need to put yourself in your right place. And it's, you are not God. You're not God. How bad do you think the son felt? I mean, beyond remorse. Beyond anguish. It, it would have actually probably been, you know, he would have been able to survive it had the father said, yeah, that's right, there's the bunkhouse over there. Go work with the rest of the hired hands. Yeah, get over there. He would have said, oh, yeah, I, that's about the way I expected it to go. That was, that was bad, but I made it. I, I, I held on. I didn't have to go through my metanoia as far as I thought. I'm good. But no, the most humiliating part is that the father says, Kill the fatty cat, put the ring on his, on his finger. It's a party. That's humiliation. Say, you belong. Separation's over. It doesn't matter. That's the kind of humiliation I'm talking about. The one that says, go through, go through Good Friday. Be killed by your fellow man. Be put in the tomb. It's all over with. Oh, and then rise on the third day. And end up at home. Back to the garden. Back to relationship with God. Are you ready to wake up? That's really the ultimate question around church. And, and I'm not just talking about people becoming Christians for the first time. I'm talking about your ongoing sanctification, your ongoing salvation, your ongoing 
striving towards holiness, your ongoing deepening relationship with God? Are you going to continue to have metanoias? Are you going to continue to dispute the crisis and say, my crisis is my way forward in this thing. It's my starting point. I will go through the humiliation. I am after home. I desire to be with God. I want to go back to the garden. Are you ready for this sort of a wake-up? Are you willing to pay the price? Because it will cost dearly. That's the humiliation part. That's what gets you back there to home. That's the endurance part through the suffering to get to completeness. Are we willing to let go? Um, years ago, when I was about nine or 10 years old on the black and white television, uh, it's in the afternoon, and I'm watching Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. And for a few old-timers, you know what I'm talking about. Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. And this one, well, several of those Mutual of Omaha Wild Kingdom animal shows sticks in my mind. But one in particular, there was this guy, Jim, who always did all the dirty work. And he was a young buck. And he kind of looked like Tarzan with a, with a ripped-off shirt. And, um, and he always had to do all the dirty work. And Jim had to do the dirty work in this one. And what this, this episode was about was about how aborigines in some place in the world eat, and they eat monkey. And so you got to kill a monkey if you want to eat it. And so this, this is way before political correctness. You actually get to see a monkey being killed on television. It's really quite brutal. So here's what happens. The aborigines then would, would find a tree with monkeys in it, or a monkey, poor monkey, and they would take a rope and they'd tie a gourd to the bottom of the tree. And they'd cut a little hole in the gourd and they would put a piece of fruit inside there, and you know what's going to happen. The monkey's going to come down with all of his good Homer Simpsonness, and he's going to stick his hand inside there and grab the piece of fruit, and now his fist is too big to come outside the hole. But the monkey won't let go of the fruit, even though the aborigine and Jim with the big club are walking up to the monkey and are going to bash its brains in, which is exactly what happens on television. And now you know why it sticks in my mind so much as a 9 or a 10-year-old. <laughs> of course, your kids are going to go home this afternoon and play Halo and tour Call of Duty, so don't worry about this sort of thing. It's all, it never affects them. It's fine. <laughs> my, my point is, is, what piece of fruit are you holding on to? It's not going to go well for you. You're stuck in this crisis. You're refusing the metanoia. You don't even want to think about the humiliation, and you will never get home. Consider it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials. Your crisis, that thing you were too afraid to pencil in on the margin of your program, that thing, that crisis, your hard times, your addiction, your baggage, your abuse, yeah, your sin, it isn't right. It's not justified. Never hear from up here that, that you deserve that. But it is your way home. And this is the great topsy-turvy moment in the Christian experience, is that your baggage, your crisis, your suffering has a perfect, complete result 
And it is very difficult to get to. I don't mean that you're going to save yourself. Jesus did that on the cross. I mean the process of becoming a whole, complete person. Your sanctification, to get your 10-cent word in there. You must go through it. And my, 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 my dilemma is trying to impress us enough to be able to say, yes, I will endure it. I will, I will pay the price to go through this. Let go of the piece of fruit and run for your life. Stop hanging on to the baggage. Whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy. Why? Because there's something at the end called home, back to the garden. But you'll have to go through the metanoia. You'll have to go through the humiliation. Things most people aren't willing to do. This is only for the brave and the desperate. Are you brave? Are you desperate? If you want this, then you'll have to come and get it. Will you face your demons? Will you follow Jesus down into the tomb? Will you follow him through the great Sabbath sleep, the humiliation? Will you be there at the dawn and arise with him and walk out into the light? Out of the darkness and into the morning light and into the dawn. And the very first church, the very first church, the very next day, they went to the tomb. And they stood there and they stood around the tomb and Jesus didn't come out. The stone was rolled away and they began to worship and praise God because he said, death is dead and we are alive. Everything's being reinvented. This isn't just some dogma faith thing. This is actually a new way of living. Can you imagine if you believe that death was dead? All the baggage begins to slip away. All the crises begin to make sense. Everyone says, I didn't do this. I didn't do this. Jesus did this. And then the next week they showed up on the first day of the week at, at the tomb. And they begin to say some lines. And here's probably the earliest. I'm, we're going to put it on the screen. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 14. They begin to say, this is probably the earliest uh, hymn or prayer or whatever you want to call it in the, in the church. The very first words. Awake, O sleeper. And arise from the dead, and Christ shall give you light. They stood around the outside of the tomb saying, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give you light. And they'd gone this long path through the crisis, and through the metanoia, and through the humiliation, and, 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 and home. Finally, the way home was there. It wasn't just an ideal. The kingdom come on earth as in heaven. It was all real suddenly. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give you light. Rise to your feet, everyone. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give you light. Say it with me. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give you light. Again, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give you light. See, my hope is, is that when you say these words, awake, O sleeper, that somehow, like on a Tuesday afternoon, when you're sitting at your desk or you're out at the job or whatever, suddenly into your mind, because I think the Holy Spirit would do this sort of thing, you would suddenly say, awake, O sleeper. And it's God tugging at your heart saying, like, wake up, wake up. You are not defined by your crisis. You are going somewhere, home, back to the garden. This is what you were meant for. You are not defined by all of your sin and all of your brokenness.
You are a child of God. And that's the journey we're on. And that's what we're supposed to awake about. May the peace of the Lord Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness, protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen, everyone.